Welcome to Skype call testing service. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. This is a Skype call test. Skype call test. Hello. Uh, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Is this um, Dr. Donald Schaffner, PhD, professor, doctor? Yes. Is this the Skype call testing service? It is. It is. Is your Skype working today? It seems to be. Uh, it's funny because I'm calling you on FaceTime. So it's, it's odd that it's ringing through your Skype. What's going on, Don? I was, I was just on the phone with the, the lovely English lady that does my Skype call testing service. <laughs> what? It seems like you have a very tight relationship with her. What, um, what is she doing this, this fine afternoon? Um, it's it's morning here, but clearly since she's in British, England, yeah, yeah, she's, she's probably getting ready to watch Doctor Who or Downton Abbey. I, I think pretty much she spends all day on Skype. It sounds like a horrible job. It does not sound good. Well, unless I mean, she gets to spend not quite all day on Skype with you, which isn't a bad job. Like if it was if it was just you all day, I like to it? I like to pretend she's just there for me. Well, that's nice. <laughs> It's kind of what I do, though, is spend all my time on Skype with you. You know, I didn't, I didn't mention this to you. So we've, we've seen each other in real life recently. Yes. And I did not mention to you um, that when I was with you in Southern California, <laughs> um, I was most comfortable when we were in the car together and we could talk to each other and I didn't have to look at you. <laughs> well, that's good to know. It's, you know, it's funny that my wife says that, too. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if that what that means but I'm, I'm not sure what that means either it, it's funny it's I, I i don't um it's funny you say that because it, it's not like I, I avoid eye contact with with other people but when i'm when i'm with you i'm also i'm, I'm also comfortable when i'm beside you <laughs> is that did that did that come out weird we <laughs> just a little bit just a little bit weird um we got we had a fabulous time together and yeah, with yeah. our our good friend uh good friends Todd and Wendy mm-hmm. um and we got to watch a uh high speed police chase and eat duck poutine and brussels sprouts which um you ordered some brussels sprouts at this restaurant called Hopscotch which is mm-hmm. where we ate dinner mm-hmm. and um they had honey in them and i came home and made brussels sprouts with honey in them oh wow and it's so they're so good there's still some in the fridge it's, it's awesome that that is good. I I, uh, I I should eat more Brussels sprouts. I really like Brussels sprouts, and I I've uh, I, I don't think I've always liked Brussels sprouts, but but yeah, I really like Brussels sprouts. And will and and by the way, if, if anybody is in Southern California and they have not been to Hopscotch, um, uh, shame on you. You should go. It's so we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, fantastic restaurant. It's uh, it's Todd's uh, favorite restaurant, I think, uh, or one of his favorite restaurants. Um, right there in the neighborhood, the general neighborhood. Uh, where where they live, the region um, yeah, where it's they in live, Fullerton, so, Fullerton, California. Yeah, so a really really cool restaurant. It's awesome. Uh, very, um, you know, unless you're unless you're put off by uh, hipster well, <laughs> hipster dudes off, waiting yeah. on you with giant beards and and earrings, but or I mean, if you're put off by really good food yeah and good drinks yeah if yeah if you, if you like yeah if you really if you if you if you don't like good food and good drinks don't go don't go there at all yeah it was it was awesome it, i it, it's not often that um I, you know we we like to eat we like to eat good food 
Mm. And and we, you know, we spend our non, you know, if we have a babysitter, we, we are often going to, you know, to a restaurant, um, to places, you know, we, tr- we try to try at new spots in, in Raleigh and there's some really good, some good food here. It's not often where, um, where the experience outplays my hype. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the experience of hopscotch, it wasn't, it wasn't all that hyped beforehand. It was, you know, Wendy, Wendy said, let's, we're going to go to this place. Um, I checked it online. I was like, oh, this looks, this looks good. We got there and it was, it was awesome. It was totally my kind of place. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good. And the, and the, the, the low speed slash high speed police chase uh, on the, um, on the TV was just an added bonus. Amazing. I, uh, I in fact showed Danny that I found it online and mm-hmm. said, "Hey, Don and Wendy and Todd, and I watched this <laughs> this chase. Look what look what happens here when this truck crashes into a, a Honda Civic. Um, I know I know how this ends. Yeah, <laughs> does it never ends well? No, it, don't, it never ends well. I, you know, I I I I really wonder. I mean, we're way off topic now, but I really wonder what goes through the minds of people as they are doing that. It's like. I, I'm going to get out of this, right? It's like, no, you're really, you're really not going to get out of this. Why? You're just making this worse for yourself. It, yeah, it's, it is weird, especially, I don't know. I guess people that are running from police are, are running because they think they're going to get out of it all the time. Yeah. Right? Well, I guess why else would you run? Right. Right. Yeah. Like there's, and, and there's gotta be, I, I, I agree with you. I don't know what, how, how, like I would never, I would never think, Oh, I can get away from the police. <laughs> like I never, I, I've never <laughs> I can get away from them. But and, I never and think that I could. And and here's the thing, Ben. That's probably why you've never been in a car chase with the police. Because every time, and I'm sure there have been times in your life, <laughs> you've seen those flashing lights in your rearview mirror. You probably pulled over, and I've seen them. You know, more than more than once. I mean, you know, I've had a long life, and occasionally I go for the speed limit. <laughs> And, uh, you know, not a regular thing. It's like a once every, you know, once every several years, probably it happens and, uh, I pull over and, you know, usually, uh, you know, usually it's okay. And you, you get a ticket sometimes, sometimes if you're nice to the cop, um, and he, he's, he knows you're from the neighborhood. Like, uh, I think I might've even shared on this podcast before I've been stopped coming into freehold and, uh, the cop pulled me over and said, Oh, you got a freehold. Freehold uh, license. Uh, you live here in the borough. Yep. Okay. I'm gonna let you go this time. You know. And uh, other times, uh, other times, I have I, uh, I have not uh, uh, been been let off so easy. But but I always pull over. <laughs> not once have you thought, oh, I should gun it here. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I see these lights. You know what? I think I can get it. I I think if I just take off and then pull into someone's random driveway and uh, you know slip underneath my seat. Uh, he's never going to see me. Well, you know, I have, I have thought about that. Okay. Like, huh, I just, I just, I just went by that cop. Um, I see where he is. I see how fast I was going. Is there somewhere where I could quickly turn off and turn off, you know, like turn and then turn off the car and turn off my lights, you know, like they always do in the movies. That thought has crossed my mind. Right. But usually in those instances, um, the cop either never like never turns on his lights or he's going after someone else. So I never have to use that, <laughs> that escape tactic. So you have, it's in your arsenal. <laughs> it's not in my the theoretical, it. it's in my theoretical arsenal. Yeah. Not have not had to pull it out yet. Right. Oh man. Um, well it's, uh, it, w- what's funny about these high speed or slow speed car chases is it, you know, it's like a lot of things, um, 
media wise, and maybe this is in uh, Drew Curtis's FARC.com book, but it seems like all of these high speed, low speed car chases happen in Southern California. I don't know if that's because those are the only ones we see, um, but I, I've not ever, like, I, I feel like it would be a, hu- a big news if there were um, helicopters and 35 police cars chasing someone in Raleigh. Like, it would be, it would be a notable day. And yeah. and it, I've never seen it. Yeah, or or New Jersey too. You know it, that it, it it. I wonder what it is that creates that culture. Is it is it is it? Yeah, what is it? Is it is it the the way that the cops do things? Is it the news media? Is it people the people the people live in the area see it on the news media, so it becomes a self perpetuating kind of a thing? I, I, yeah. I wonder if if it's just that that people get away there, so it. <laughs> Like, is it possible that someone does get away? So it is a viable option. Not if it's on TV, Ben. I guess so. But why would people keep doing it? There's got to be some data on this. Well, I think, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. It's got to be in the uh, Journal of um, Parking, Driving, and and, uh, Automotives. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's – here you go. Here's a – Here's a paper for you. Police pursuits in an age of innovation and reform. <laughs> There's an actual paper. Yeah, there it is from September 2008. Research authored at George Mason University. Some folks there. But was it in the Journal of Parking and whatever the other Park, stuff? Just... Parking, driving, and, and yeah. automotives? No, this was uh, presented to uh, the IACP Police Pursuit. Oh, no. It is the IACP Police Pursuit Database. There's actually a database of this. Oh, oh. see. Someone's answered this question. It's gotta, good to know. It is good to know. I, I, I feel like this will be for um, our other sister podcasts. Um, <laughs> driving, police Pursuit Talk. Safety, yeah, Police Pursuit Talk. Driving Safety Talk. <laughs> Whoa, Don. Okay. Circumstances of law enforcement officer deaths. 20-year trends. Mm. Automobile, motorcycle, and aircraft accidents. Aircraft accidents. Cops that's, and aircraft accidents. Yeah, that's clearly the number one reason that uh yeah aircraft accidents <laughs> okay that's that's probably enough <laughs> it's enough police talk for today it's enough, it's enough police talk for now uh, for now yeah for now we might come back to this i've not i mean i don't think that there's much going on in the world of food safety that uh relates to police today well, i don't know there was that uh there was that uh criminal case brought against uh uh american uh corporate uh, peanut butter corporate peanut corporation of america that's True. a cr- and, criminal case and J- uh, jensen farms jensen yeah. farms jensen brothers C- yeah criminal case yeah only a couple though not too many um hey so i i have some well something else from our california um trip our, our Cal- california uh day date um that i want to uh, to talk about mm-hmm. so as i as i was driving you i had a rental car there and as I, we were driving from our uh, our hotel uh, in Anaheim to Fullerton to Hopscotch, um, I was listening to to a, pl- a playlist of <laughs> popular music songs, mm-hmm. um, and and I felt at some point as we were maybe eight or ten minutes into our um, into our drive to explain to you why we were listening to Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. and it's because my kids are really into t- Taylor Swift, um, and and you seemed okay with that. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I do need to I need to tell you that um, something is, has happened. It, you know, you go through these musical stretches where you listen to different things. All of a sudden right now, 
like top 40 pop music is a big is a big deal for me and and Danny it's like all we're all we're listening to is some some catchy catchy tunes by uh Rihanna and Kanye and Taylor Swift and Sam Smith and all these all these people that are that are on the Grammys and it's and I'm not listening to a bunch of other stuff isn't that weird that's very weird it's really odd so I don't know I'm a I'm a six year old boy or a 12 year old girl um right now when it comes to musical tastes mm-hmm um, so, so go, I, and, and for, for our, for our listeners, I'm sure this is, you know, it's not, not going to be news to them cause I'm sure they're, they're really into, um, the top, the top 40 stuff. But uh, I'll tell you that, um, the number one song in rotation in our house right now mm. is drunk in love from the great Beyonce Z mm. and, and her, and her man, Jay Z. <laughs> is that is that really sending the right message to your kids though? I don't think so. Okay, think so. it's a really good song though. Okay, I n- I've never looked to music as a um, a viable message delivery system. Okay, um, but but uh, I, I I understand your um, your comment there. It's a good song. Uh, we'll we'll link to it in show notes. Yeah, please do. Oh, the, and 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 apparently uh, the you can link to the explicit version in in uh, in show notes in in YouTube. So we're going to link to the explicit version. Uh, not safe for work. We will. I um, let me let me ask you about about that. This is mm. some parenting advice uh, <laughs> that I looked. Oh God. Yeah, it's it's good. This is good. Um, I have not censored any music now. There, well, I shouldn't say that. There are certain, like, like I like to listen to Wu Tang Clan. That's not come up in in rotation in the house or in the car, right? Like, I'll, I'll skip over you, that. You just sense, censor your your listening. I do just a little ex- bit, completely, like, just not even going to play it. Right, right, exactly. But there are certain. So, so this morning I was driving Jack to um, to school, and we're he we, we have two choices in the morning. We we can listen to sports talk radio. <laughs> Or we can listen to music, and most of the time, eighty percent of the time, when he when we drive, he wants to listen to music. Sometimes he, he's like, "Are they talking about hockey on Sports Talk Radio?" And if they are talking about hockey, then we'll listen to that. Um, but today we were, we listen to music, and uh, a Sublime song came on. Mm-hmm. Are, are you familiar with Sublime? I, I am. I used to listen to Sublime back in the day, and probably played it in the car uh, with my kids who were with me. Yeah, I love Sublime. Great. Yeah, yeah really good. It, it's one of the few. Um, bands that I feel that my voice matches with, like I can, I, I, I feel like I sound like them when I'm singing in the car. Mm. So I like that. Um, and but but there are some explicit lyrics. And you bet. So, so what I what I tend to do is I don't I don't skip over. We listen to the song, but I don't say the explicit. I don't sing the explicit parts. Okay. And I kind of like smudge all over them. Okay. And um, and it's never. But you know, I, I know that the boys are are very. Um, they're starting to hear lyrics. Oh yeah, and then and then say them. But they're but so so I've just I just ignore them at this point. I ignore these lyrics from the songs that we that we listen to, and and I, I wanted I, I guess in your experience as you listen to music that might have had some explicit lyrics, um, 
what, how did you handle that with your kids? That's a really, that's a really good question. And I, I have to say that one of my favorite songs of all time is, uh, what I got the sublime yeah. song, what I got, I don't get angry when my mom smokes pot, hits the bottle and goes right to the rock. Um, you know, which is not appropriate, not appropriate, <laughs> but, but really good lyric. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, <clears throat> And and I think that I think the lead singer uh, died of a heroin overdose. So like yeah. not yeah not a not a not a good role model for kids. Um, you know the the best people to ask about this would be my kids. I, I don't I don't think I particularly censored my music, and I might have done what you did, which was to avoid things that I obviously knew were drug related, or if I knew there was a song. With a, and mostly, you know, mostly it's, yeah, and I guess I don't, I'm trying to think if there were songs with explicit profanity. Um, and this again, remember when I was listening to music with my kids, um, this was before iTunes, right? Uh, this was, yeah. So the iPod came out when my kids were teenagers, but anything prior to that, certainly when they were the age of your, that your kids are now, it was all the radio. So already it was being censored by the radio. Um, you know, I mean the, the, the curse words would be censored, but, but songs about, you know, drug use or, or things that would be inappropriate. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that I really explicitly did that much censoring. And again, I appreciate your strategy, um, of just avoiding artists that, you know, would be potentially problematic. Yeah. But, it, but yeah, I, that, I didn't really give you an answer, but except no, to sorry. say, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure what advice I would give, but I, you know, you can only, you can only censor your kids so much. And then here's the thing. If you call out something, if you make a big deal out of something, they're going to get that, right? Whereas if you just sort of just ignore it or slough it off or don't call attention to it, it's likely that they will not make a big deal out of it either. So I, I th- honestly think that sometimes by like going to great efforts to protect them or saying, Oh, we can't listen to that song immediately. Of course, what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to listen to that song. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think not making a big deal out of it is a good strategy. That's kind of what what I've done and and not, you know, I I don't know at at some point when they, when they ask me about, you know, that certain word or what that lyric means, then I'll, then I'll explain it and be like, Mm -hmm. well, that's a word that we, that we don't really say in certain situations like at school or when you're Ever. yeah yeah exactly um i don't know if i'd share with shared you shared this with you on on the podcast um but so you know growing up um i spent and i don't know if you're if you're familiar with my um my interest in um in a, a canadian game called hockey it's come um, up once or twice before I, on the I podcast i might have mentioned that yeah um, so, so I spent, my dad was also, um, uh, quite interested in, in that game and played a lot of hockey when I was growing up and he used to take me to tournaments or to games and, and I would go, you know, I'm, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, 10 years old, maybe even a little younger. And I'd sit in the dressing room with them, um, uh, before the game or after the game. And the dressing room is like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to explain it cause it doesn't really like fit the rest of society, but it's this place where you hear a lot of different curse words, where there's a lot of jokes. Uh huh. It's not, it's not normal. Like you would never think, Oh, that's, that's acceptable. 
in other situations. But but I remember, you know, I, I don't know, I was seven years old, and I remember my dad saying to me, there are things, you know, as we were going into the dressing room, and he, you know, for whatever reason, I was. This was the time when he was going to be like, "Okay, you can you can come in here and, and see what this whole culture is about." Um, I remember him saying to me, um, "You're going to hear things and words that you will never be able to tell your mother," <laughs> and and that that you just like. So he kind of it wasn't a big deal, but he kind of made it, and it stuck with me to you know, obviously to today. He made it known that. This is not how how we operate in public. This is a different kind of place, and and don't if you tell your mom, you are never coming back to it mm. because because I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for right. taking you into it. And it, and it was never like a big deal. It was just like, oh, okay, I understand. This is different than than this place over here. And it would never we never talk like this in in school. And it's you know I've, I don't know I, I've. Kind of, I've not really shared that with with my kids yet because they've not you know seen that that part of the culture. Mm-hmm. But as they get older, I've thought, oh, I'm I'm going to use the same mm-hmm. the same tactic. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of two two things. One, um, that wonderful scene in the movie A Christmas Story. Where Ralphie, um, you know, the, the, the hubcap full of yep. the, the, the bolts goes flying and he says, oh, fudge, but he doesn't really say, oh, fudge. And of course, he learned this curse word from his father, but he has to lie and say that he learned it from his friend at school. And then his mother calls the friend's mother on the phone and he gets in trouble. And anyway, uh, leads to the, the lovely line about the, 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 the Pequot <laughs> flavor of Life Boy soap. But, but I, I had a similar experience growing up and it wasn't, it wasn't in the, um, hockey locker room with my dad. It was in the golf locker room with my grandfather. And so my grandfather was a big, big player of of golf. And, uh, I used to caddy for him and would go and, and hang out, you know, when he was playing golf with his, you know, older white, Golf, overweight, older white, overweight golf buddy, racist golf buddy friends, um, who would say all kinds of inappropriate stuff in the um uh, in the locker room, and you know my grandfather would occasionally like kind of like give him a look and nod his head in my direction, like this is a kid here, like, yeah, like to watch what you say a little bit, but uh, yeah, anyway, so that was that was my my exposure to that kind of man, you know male uh, world of of the locker room. So and again for whatever reason that memory is still with me and and obviously your your story you know pinged that so yeah let me so let me bring this back to our world of food safety talk (laughs) i was wondering how you're gonna do that no i i had i had a plan for this excellent um when i you know i i've shared on the podcast and i told you that when i was doing my um you know research for for my phd i spent a bunch of time washing dishes mm. in, in mm. the kitchen in a, you know, in a working kitchen. Cause I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. And I figured if I was going to conduct research on that, you know, uh, in that setting on the, with the audience there, I should know more about them. And so I'd get up at, um, not, I mean, not super early, it'd be like eight o'clock in the morning and I would drive to this restaurant and I would wash dishes in the dish pit. Um, it, you know, stuff, pots and, and plates that have been left over from the night before. And then did, did a bunch of prep work for the lunch rush. And then I would volunteer through the lunch rush and, and leave around two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and that it, it, it was a similar type of 
culture to the locker room in the kitchen. Like, like I saw, um, I, I mean, not that my locker rooms are like this, but I saw drug use. I saw, um, sexism. I saw, um, you know, uh, I heard uh, a lot of profanity. I, I saw this leadership situation and not unlike a, a, a hockey dressing room where, where there are, you know, two or three people that seem to dominate the conversation. Um, like in, there isn't any social kind of setting. There's, there's always these, you know, sort of natural hierarchies that, that happen. I saw that kind of stuff. And it was, it was interesting because it, you know, I'd go there and I'd have to, I, you know, I just kind of like, it was ethnography. I just was there and was part of the system and, and tried to blend in as much as possible with the culture. But it was, it was clear to me when I went in there that it was different than, you know, operating in my own kitchen. <laughs> Cause it wasn't, you know, it was a, a different level of camaraderie than I would have with, um, with, you know, with Danny, but, but <laughs> Plus also, the, dr- the drug use and the yeah, sexual innuendo was probably different. Right. It was, di- it was just, different. <laughs> I'm not saying higher or lower. I'm just no, saying it was different. Just different. It was just, yeah. Different, different choices. Um, but it was, it was really, it was really interesting. And, um, there's some stuff that, that, that I, I pulled out of that, that experience and then did some interviews with, um, restaurants in, um, in Ontario and in, uh, Kansas and then also in Michigan where, where we focused on some of that, that stuff and never published it. It was, it was weird. It was hard to get it out of the interviews, but we would hear some, some things about how, um, how drug use, impacted whether someone, you know, someone cut their hands, uh, with a knife, they're probably just going to duct tape it as opposed to go directly to the hospital, especially in the U S settings, because their health insurance was dependent on, um, you know, they would have to have a, a, a drug drug test before their health insurance kicked in, or that was a stipulation, um, uh, you know, of it. Um, and so it was just really like, I, you know, it's, it's like this other area of, of society that I had not experienced that wasn't in, in my normal university setting. And, and it was more similar to a hockey dressing room than, than not, than, than other stuff. And it's, you know, it's, that's always kind of stuck with me, um, through the, you know, through, through what I do with anytime I go into a, uh, a processing plant or, uh, you know, a, a packing facility. You can, I just kind of get the sense of the way that, that this little piece of culture of society works is, is probably different than what we would expect on the outside. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say <clears throat> I haven't spent, um, much time working in kitchens. I did have a job in uh, graduate school working in a uh, Godfather's uh, pizza in Athens, Georgia, which was definitely a, a good and eye-opening experience. Um, and kudos to you for going out and doing that because I think that very often academics, you know, have a perspective about the world and a perspective about the way things work and it could be totally wrong. Or, I mean, if nothing else, you absolutely need to know, um, like what that world is really like. And the only way to get that experience, almost the only way to get that experience would be to go to work in a kitchen. And then I would say too, if people are interested 
in what that world is like and they don't have the time to go work in a kitchen. Uh, I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but Tony Bourdain's uh, Kitchen Confidential book, tr- just a tremendous glimpse inside that world. Um, another uh, book that we've talked about before, uh, The Minotaur Takes a Cigarette Break, which is you know essentially about that world as if the mythical creature the Minotaur worked in it. Um, so again, that would be highly recommended. And then the other, the other thing too, another comment that has always stuck with me was showing up one day in my job as an extension specialist showing up um, to work with a food company and, you know, showing up, you know, not dressed like a slob, but, but not, not dressed in a suit and tie either. And someone at the company remarking to me that they were very impressed that I actually showed up looking like I was there to work rather than to sit in an office. And so I've always, (laughs) I don't, I don't always affect that dress, but you know, it does, it does make a difference. And again, certainly it makes a difference when you're talking to people in the food industry, um, you know, food processing industry is you, you have to appreciate their world and you have to understand the way that things work. And we, as, you know, as, as ivory tower academics may have a certain perspective on how we think things should be in a food processing plant, but guess what? It's not like that. And there are, there is a hierarchy and there are rules that are commonly broken and you have to acknowledge that you have to pay attention to that. Um, otherwise any, uh, message that you're trying to communicate will just be lost. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's what I took away from, from any of that experience. And it wasn't, I, you know, I can't, um, I can't claim the, the idea for it. Although I've tried to perpetuate the, those types of experiences with, with my students or give them those opportunities as much as possible. But I had a, um, uh, a committee member, uh, Gord Surgener, who was uh, a, a faculty member in in plant um, agriculture and you know the department that I did my um, masters and, and PhD work in, and he was he sat on my on my committee for both of those degrees, and he was um, retiring from from the university, um, and uh, actually at the end of my my masters I think you know he had he had retired uh, that was his last like official thing, and he told a story at his retirement party that gave me the idea for, um, you know, for the, for the kitchen stuff with, a um, you know, my, my experience of volunteering there. He said he was an entomologist, um, who did a bunch of his research. All of his graduate research was on mosquitoes and, uh, mosquito born diseases and mosquito entomology, you know, mosquito biology, and he took a job at the University of Guelph as an agricultural entomologist. And he, he I, I don't know, like he's he's a brilliant dude, and I don't know where where he got the idea, but in his first, um, you know, semester, he said to his department head, um, "Can I don't want to teach, but can you let me go for this, you know, this semester to to live on some farms?" in Ontario and understand where entomology fits in with, with what, what they do. And so he, he went and, and volunteered at, um, uh, dairy production in pork production in row crops and in horticulture and, and just told this like wonderful story about his experiences. I mean, this is during his, you know, his, uh, retirement 
you know, speech about and, and sort of named all the, those farmers who were, you know, he kind of said, paraphrasing him now, that they were generous enough to show him what it was like to work in agriculture and where they dealt with entomology and really gave him this rich understanding of who the people were that he his research and his you know outreach and extension work were were going to impact and really set it set the stage for his entire career and i was you know sitting there i don't know looking for um maybe not looking for inspiration but got sort of this massive piece of uh, of inspiration i was like you know what damn i i i don't know anything like just like gord i don't know anything about kitchens and 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 maybe I can go find somebody to that'll that'll let me in and let me see the system. And it was, I mean, the most valuable experience of uh, of my of my entire degree was was just understanding. Like I, I think it it provides some some insight to me and some credibility when I when I do talk and and do you know research and extension in this area. It's like I understand. I know what I know that time matters. I know that. Um, that food costs are a really big deal and, and waste is, it's not, you know, it's not waste for the, for the sense of, um, you know, for the, the betterment of society, it's waste because it costs them money. And, and all these things that I just, I didn't have a, a concept of really come back to, to, you know, seeing that, that, um, that speech that, that Gord gave and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I gotta, I gotta go do this. Now remind me, Gord is the same one, um, with the case of beer bibliography he, formatting, right? He is. He's the same, he's the same one. Yeah. Um, and, and also, um, a, uh, one of the, um, you know, I, I think most of my, most of my degree, my degrees I spent, um, playing hockey and golfing and I golfed a lot with Gord and Doug. <laughs> so yeah. Thanks so, so much. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. And Gord's Gord's daughter Bray mm. um, yep. did did her masters with with Doug as Doug, well. Yep. And now she works in uh, for Alberta Health Services in Calgary, um, with doing um, infrastructure for uh, the the health system. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was really I mean, mo- you know, monumental. You know, I, I you know thinking about days like when my dad told me these are not the things that you tell your mother, and and then I can still vividly see. Yeah, I know where I was standing in the room when Gord mm-hmm. was telling this the story. And I was right, like, damn, I got to do that. Yeah, good um, story. One, yeah, yeah. One more, one more book I'll add to the list um, beyond uh, the Minotaur and, and Tony Bourdain is uh, a book called Heat by Bill Buford, um, and it's uh, a book that that I read at the start of my PhD while I was going through this um, these experiences in, in the kitchen, and it was. Uh, um, a guy who uh, wrote for um, the New Yorker um, and left his job at the New Yorker and then became—he was really interested in, in food and, and the kitchen culture—and he um, he volunteered and became a line cook at uh, for Mario Batali. Hmm. A really, really great, great book. I remember, um, you know, a lot of my a lot of my experiences were a lot like like what what he wrote about. Fantastic. Well done. Good. So, so we got kitchens. I want to, uh, we got, we got a bunch of things have happened since we last talk, talked mm-hmm. like, like people in Australia are getting sick from hepatitis A and berries. Oh yeah. Can we talk about, can we yeah. talk about my risk assessment? I do. That's exactly <laughs> what I want to talk about. Um, so, so just to, to set the stage here, um, 
there uh, about, I guess, a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, some hepatitis A cases uh, popped up in, in Australia. And initially, it was about six. It's up to uh, 19 confirmed or 20, maybe, actually. I just got, got a message this morning. So 19 or 20 cases um, linked to frozen uh, berry mixture. And and the epidemiology and, and the investigation i don't know that we haven't seen all the data on this but it looks like the health authorities in in australia have, are, are focusing on um raspberries that were imported from um uh, china uh and put into uh frozen frozen bags or you know for frozen um and and it's it's become like to follow this this story i you know we i've talked to doug and we've had uh, a few email conversations doug says this is like the biggest story in in Australia, and you know he he's interacting with a bunch of parents at schools, and everyone's talking about um, frozen berries. You and I last week when we were at um, the uh, American Frozen Food Institute annual meeting in Anaheim, um, this came up in a weird spot. I was um, in the elevator with a, a crew of pilot and pilots and uh, flight crew from. Uh, Qantas and, uh, you know, these, the elevators were very slow, um, which you and I talked about in person a bunch. Um, and, uh, in the elevator was, was also a couple of people from, um, the frozen food industry. And so the, uh, pilot says, are you here for a, you know, a conference or convention guy from the frozen food industry says, yes, we're, uh, we, we make frozen vegetables. And the pilot says to him, have you heard about our problem with hepatitis A and our frozen berries? Like totally random, you know, just a a pilot guy that that's the, the, how, um, how big this, this story kind of, kind of got. And then the, the frozen food industry guy replied, said, Oh yeah, we, we know all about it. (laughs) Um, but so well, for, and and thank God that was the answer, right? Right. right. Because right. it could have easily been no. What's that about? And yeah. that just makes the industry look. I mean, it's it's great that the pilot was aware, but I'm pleased that the guy from the industry, um, like, uh, was at least aware. Because sometimes people, and again, you know, not not no one that we know that works in the food industry, but sometimes people in the food industry can be kind of clueless and and have a little bit of tunnel vision. It's like, oh, well, we make frozen vegetables in the United States, therefore we don't have to worry about frozen uh, berries in Australia, right? But, right. but anyway, good. So everybody played their part in that conversation correctly. Absolutely, <laughs> everyone played their part. It all it all worked out, and, and they yeah. So it was um, it, it was kind of a you know an interesting thirty second exchange. Um, and so so for for our listeners who who don't know a whole lot about berries, um, and I you know I say that not in a um, in a condescending way, because I didn't know much about it until I started getting more and more involved with uh, with you know frozen foods and packaged foods. But um, berries um, are not heat treated, um, you know, so they're they're frozen. Um, you know, they're they're picked. Berries are since they're so um, uh, they're not very hardy. They're they're soft. Uh, fruits they're they're picked often by hand or almost always by hand um, and and then frozen in you know individually uh, in in blast chillers or in tunnels but done very you know carefully and they're not heat treated because that you know it's it's different from um, from a vegetable where you heat treat them for uh, to stop uh, you know uh, enzyme enzyme activity and preserve the quality where where um, High sugar, high acid fruits don't have the, the same enzyme activity, and uh, so they're so they're essentially picked 
sorted frozen and then distributed in a frozen bag. Um, and, and in Europe, there's been multiple outbreaks, norovirus, hepatitis A, um, associated with, with berries. Uh, we saw one in the U.S. last year that was linked to not berries but pomegranate seeds that we talked about on, um, on the podcast. Uh, and that was, a, that was a hep A uh, um, situation as well. And then now this sort of massive public discussion about um, imported foods in, in Australia are, are related to, um, to berries uh, in, this, in this outbreak. So now I will turn it over to you to talk about your risk assessment. I didn't set that up very well. Oh no, that was that was good. So so we should explain uh, kind of the, the the background for this. So it starts uh, it starts with um, uh, Doug sending a uh, typically Doug brief email message. Uh, <laughs> let me let me read the entire uh, total of the message. Okay. Do we have time? Do we have time for you to read it? <sighs> well, I don't know. Do we have ten seconds? <laughs> The subject header reads, heat inactivation of HEP A. First line, what would be the time temp requirements, question mark, without considering cross-contamination? And that's the sum total of the message, right? And and as you know, because you've gotten more of these messages from Doug yeah, right. <laughs> than, than I ever get, um, you kind of stare at it for a few minutes. You deconstruct it. You reconstruct it. You, you, you realize that he has given you essentially all the information you need in a fairly efficient manner. Um, <laughs> so, um, in fact, it's all the information you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, not only is it all you need, yeah. it doesn't really matter if it's all you need. It's all yeah. you're going to get right yeah. um and um and so you know immediately i went to work because that's what i do uh when when doug sends me a message if i have time um uh, and so uh you know th- the first place i go to whenever i get a question like this is i go to uh, icmsf volume five five which stands for the Inter- international commission on microbiological specifications for foods there was a a book that they published in 1996, which is a compilation of time temperature data for a whole range of foodborne pathogens, uh, both growth data and, and inactivation data. And, and sadly, I mean, it really needs to be updated. And, and I did uh, speak with uh, Katie Swanson, who is, was not a member in 1996, but is currently a member of ICMSF, or, or at least isn't until, until she reaches 65. Um, about updating it. And she said, yeah, that's, it just took forever to get that one done. And it's unlikely it's going to happen again. And so I went to, to that uh, article and, and I found some, some data, but it wasn't really useful. Now what's happened since 1996 is we have the internet, ubiquitous internet. And so we can, we can Google stuff and, and, and find, and find information. So I sent, I sent Doug some information from ICMSF and I gave, you know, some, an answer. And then his response was, thanks. Uh, I knew you'd know. And then he now really in the second message, he gets to the heart of what he's looking for. So if you're an Australian parent worried about frozen berries, what would be the two sentence cooking advice? Um, and so, and then I went and I did a little bit more research. I found a, a couple of, of articles um, and then wrote my, my second uh, version of my answer, which is in short, it's complicated and it defends. It depends rather. Um, and then, and then at that point, you weigh in um, 
and and come back to uh, you know again very good practical advice. You say uh, um, I heat my I heat my frozen berries to two hundred degrees Fahrenheit for two and a half minutes. Uh, I boil them in a pot and then cool them for drinks or yogurt or bake them in a crisp. Um, and then again, you you shared some additional references um, uh, and again more back and forth with Doug. Um, and and now I I kind of realize that I'm going to have to wade into this and get like really serious to provide an answer. And so um, I find an article, um, which is actually really useful, um, and we'll link to this in show notes. It is uh, an article from uh, the journal Food Microbiology, and it was published in 2010. And uh, the title is perfect, right? It says a predictive microbiology approach for thermal inactivation of hepatitis A virus in acidified berries. And this perfect. is yeah, exactly perfect. what we were looking for. Yeah. At least from the title. Um, and then uh, it's published by some French researchers. Now, unfortunately, um, it has a lot of kind of complicated math. It has, um, it does have uh, parameter estimates for uh, uh, Z values. Um, they're using, it looks like kind of a complicated model, but fortunately they provide some raw data. And so they have, uh, hepatitis A inactivation kinetics in raspberries at 65 degrees C at different pHs at, um, uh, 3.35, uh, a pH of 3.35 at, at, several different temperatures. And so from that, basically what I said was, well, you know, I, there's enough information here that I can, I can at least begin to calculate what I would judge to be some D values so I can, and Z values. And so I can, you know, come up with it with an extrapolation. And so what I did was because I didn't have that much time and, and quite honestly, Doug wasn't paying me. I just sort of <laughs> eyeballed these plots and I said, okay, so it looks like the D value at 65 is about seven minutes and the D value at 70 is four minutes and the D value at 75 is one minute. So let's take those numbers. Let's make a, a Z value plot where we, we plot uh, that. And again, you can, you can look this up on Wikipedia, but basically you take the log of the D value, you plot that on the Y axis, you take the temperature, you plot that on the X axis, and that gives you a Z value. And then what the Z value tells you is how the D value changes how the log of the D value changes as a function of temperature. And then once you have that information, you can basically extrapolate to higher temperatures. So um, even though the experiments were only done at 65, 70, and 75 degrees C, we can extrapolate um, to, uh, to 90 degrees C and to 100 degrees C. And so, and, and what, I, what I decided was that I was going to propose a five log reduction. And why a five log reduction? Well, people tend to be comfortable with that. That really is not a risk-based number. That's a risk management decision. But my risk management decision was that five log reduction of hepatitis A is sufficient, right? At least it's sufficient for me doing some calculations. And so what I discovered from the extrapolation from the equations was that at 90 degrees, the 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 uh, the time, the D value um, for a five log, uh, the D value is 0.6 uh, at 90 degrees. So the time for a five log reduction would be about point 
1.3 minutes. And of course, we don't think in minutes at that point. We think in terms of seconds. And so what 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 it boils down to, ha, pun intended, ah. um, is uh, that uh, at 90 degrees, it takes about 18 seconds for a five log reduction. At 100 degrees C, it takes about two and a little bit seconds for a five log reduction. And so essentially what I did with a lot more math and time was <laughs> to arrive at the same point that you did, which was to say, basically, if you take those frozen berries and you boil them, you get, um, you get essentially a five log reduction. Now, granted, boiling is not the same as two 2.66 seconds, but essentially by the time you take something up to boiling and cool it back down, you're going to be well above that. So, so boiling is certainly, uh, what, what this, what these calculations did for me was to say, yeah, boiling is going to be sufficient to give us some measure of risk reduction. Cause we really, you know, with vegetative cells, we, we vegetative bacterial cells, we, we understand that boiling works for spores. It really doesn't work for viruses. Gosh, who knows, right? I don't have a lot of experience with that, but what this, what these these calculations confirmed to me was, yeah, you know what? Boiling is going to give us a pretty good measure of, of, of risk reduction. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that because frozen berries may uh, be concentrated. They may have a sugar, high sugar concentration. So they, in fact, they may not boil at 100. They may boil at a temperature higher than 100. So again, but again, that adds to, uh, you know, makes it more, make, it makes a more conservative uh, case. So, so it, it, it adds conservatism to the, to the calculations because you're going to get to 100 degrees before you reach boiling. Um, so, so in the end, um, my, my advice was if you're an Australian parent worried about hepatitis A and frozen berries, heat the berries to 100 degrees C. Um, and then if you had another sentence, I would I would precede that that practical advice sentence with a qualifier, and the qualifier would read: um, the science around safe cooking practices for viruses and berries is not complete, but this is our best recommendation based on current science. And I think you went on to write an info sheet that pretty much more I or less used used use those <laughs> sentences. So. Um, anyway, uh, so that's, that's what I did and that's what I came up with. And you must've thought it was pretty good. Otherwise you wouldn't have used it in an info sheet. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought it was great. And I, and I you know, so, um, <clears throat> my, my quick non-mathematic answer was, was using two, and I've actually, um, dealt with this because not so much for hepatitis A, because I do have a hepatitis A, um, you know, I've had a hep A vaccination, but for norovirus in, in, in berries, cause I'm, that is one of the things that I'm, that I'm concerned with, um, based on some, you know, a bunch of past, past outbreaks. So I've, I've looked in the literature for norovirus inactivation. That's where I came up with the, the two and a half minutes, um, uh, for, uh, at boiling based on, um, I think it was one or one or two papers, uh, that were out there that are out there. But, um, you know, essentially, that's it, it, this is a tough one because that product these these frozen berries are not sold to be cooked, and and in some you know quick discussions around this this issue uh, with some folks in the frozen food industry last week, when you know just taking advantage of we were around a bunch of people in frozen foods, just asking about about them, they they're somewhat uncomfortable. I don't know if that's that may be too strong. They're not selling berries to be cooked. I mean, essentially, they're selling frozen berries to not be cooked, and 
they that that makes the this whole area of pre post harvest handling and and pre harvest work all that much more important but once you get into okay if you are trying to use these frozen berries for someone who is at higher risk what do you do basically the literature and your calculation says you got to boil it if you really want to um, get that five log reduction as that risk management decision uh, for these viruses which are very they're pretty hardy they don't they like they like that um, that environment and so I've been you know dancing around this one um, for a while I'm I guess I'm I'm somewhat pleasantly surprised that we haven't had more foodborne virus outbreaks with frozen berries in North America, but there's been a ton of them. Like, you know, like I mentioned before in, in Europe, it, it seems like a bear berry related outbreaks in Europe are almost as always associated with frozen as almost always viruses. So, so I don't know if that's a, a source issue or, or if it's something that we just aren't detecting here or whatever's going on. But I do, I mean, literally follow those, those steps. Um, for, for Noro, I, I, I eat frozen berries almost exclusively in, in yogurt and I cook them and cool them first. And it doesn't affect my experience with them. I mean, I'm, I'm good with a cooked berry that's mushy that's, that I then spoon into, um, into yogurt and, and add my, um, my granola into it. Right. And, and so, yeah, so I want to, I want to talk about frozen berries in particular, and then I want to step back and focus on frozen food safety in general. So what the heck is going on with frozen berries? And, and you kind of alluded to this in your, in your comments as well. Why, why do we have viral outbreaks in frozen berries, right? Is it, is it that viruses survive better? Well, so there's a lot of ways you can approach it, right? So where are the, where are the, the pathogens coming from? They may be coming because these berries are harvested by hand, Okay, there may be infected workers who are contaminating the berries. And again, we know from a long history of work with uh, good agricultural practices that um, very often toilet facilities are not made available um, to workers. And so if you have to defecate and you're an ag worker, you know, again, at least if you're not in the U.S., you may just go in the field, right? And there may not be adequate hand washing, not that hand washing is a perfect intervention, but there may not be hand washing facilities, et cetera. There's no incentive for workers to, to not go to work when they're sick because if, they're, if they don't go to work, they don't get paid. So, all right, so that explains perhaps why workers work while ill. It, it explains why pathogens could get on berries. Now, the question is why viruses? Now, it could be that, that because the, uh, the shedding period for viruses is very long relative to bacterial pathogens, that could explain it, right? It also could be that viruses perhaps are more, better able to survive under frozen temperature conditions than bacterial pathogens. Could be. I don't know. I don't know how much we know about the, you know, what, what sort of dose response information we have for viruses relative to bacteria. I know people love to trot out that norovirus is, is highly infectious, but I've, I've looked at the dose response data and I don't think it's any more infectious than salmonella. That's a little bit of a controversial statement, but I can, I can back it up with some math. I don't know about hepatitis A. Um, 
you know, what the dose response curve looks like for that. So, so, and I, and I'm not sure that you know the answer, Ben, but, but it's a really interesting question, right? Why viruses in frozen berries? And well, it could be pH, right? I mean, maybe that, maybe that, that again, it's, it's bacterial pathogens, you know, tend to not survive as well under frozen conditions. Maybe the freezing process and the acidity of the berries um, gives you more uh, control of bacterial pathogens, right? So, but, and, and then part of it, you know, part of it may be too that, ep- and again, we love epidemiologists on this podcast, but epidemiologists for in many cases work based on past association. And so why do we have viruses? Why, why are we good at seeing virus? in berry outbreaks? Well, because we've had virus in berry outbreaks in the past, and that is something that the epidemiologists are clued in to ask. Uh, they're clued in to ask about for. frozen berries, right? So, yeah. so is, it, is it all of those things together? Is it, are some of those things more important? I don't know. And is it – so I'll throw in two, two others, and I'll, I'll focus on the, the process side of things, or at least the berry process side of things. Um, is berries that we grow here in North Carolina that I'm more familiar with than than, than others? It comes they they grow best at the time of the year where we are likely to get frost. Like like I, I should say they they start out so we we are doing frost protection because they're early season type products and that frost protection is lar- largely done, and our friend Michelle Daniluk has, has dealt with this when it comes to citrus, it's largely done by spraying water directly on on the product or directly on the product as it's as it's forming, you know, these are these are pre-berry berries. Um, and I, I wonder if that's that's a factor here where if we're focusing a lot of our our attention on irrigation water and with berries, you know, different risk management decisions based on drip versus overhead, all of a sudden we have these events that that cause us to use a whole bunch of different water and we may have to use water that comes from a different source. And that water, that that process may be um, you know, driving pathogens directly onto the product. And then the whole like handling uh and and freezing process may be protecting the um the the pathogen, you know, like you said with pH, but it, it may be, have something to do with um, humidity and how quickly the the barriers are frozen and drawing out that heat and protecting the the virus. And and I you know I often wonder and I, I we we I need to do a little bit of digging on this, but we you know we've um, historically, the you know norovirus and Khaleesi viruses, as they used to be called, were classified as winter vomiting virus, and um, there there are thoughts that the virus is more stable. In, in winter, and you know, now we look at frozen berries. We're essentially creating winter. Uh, well, <laughs> and and there's a seasonality to those outbreaks, right? right and so, right. if you look at when are the viruses being grown, and uh, when are people most likely to be infectious and shedding the virus? Well, boom again. It's it's this it's this perfect storm scenario where you have risk factor on top of risk factor, and eventually you know one signal emerges and it happens to be the virus in in frozen berries signal. Yeah, it's it, it is kind of fascinating, and it's it's one of these things where I you know I don't know I, I, is everybody talking about this and we you know we it's not in the top ten food um, 
pathogen combinations that we see in the popular press, right? Like you, you and I and, and, and Doug and, and Leanne, you know, the people in the virus world and probably in the berry world are, are, are interested in this, but it hasn't hit the public discussion the same way that um, Listeria and cantaloupe has, you know, like, like we've had, it's just not, um, it, it, it doesn't. And I wonder at the retail level, if maybe last year's pomegranate frozen berry um, uh, process or process uh, incident um, rose this to, to a level of awareness that wasn't there before. But even during that situation, in discussions that I had had with, with some retail folks, they weren't, they didn't know that pomegranate seeds were harvested by hand. Like that, 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 that could be a, that, that's a, that's a, a, a potential risk. You know, that, that's a control point that, that we need to, to, to worry about when it comes to, to risk management. So, uh, you know, the more that these things happen, um, you know, the more it, it moves, but I, I just, you know, I feel like even now, following this stuff, no one's really paying attention to, to frozen berries and, and viruses. Well, and, and the other thing that you have to ask is where do frozen berries come from, right? Now, if I'm a berry producer in the U.S. and I'm producing really nice, high-quality berries, uh, guess what? I'm going to sell those on the fresh market because I'm sure I can get a much better price, right? Exactly. Whereas frozen berries are going to be maybe ones that the quality is more marginal, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, and again, you know, where, where does pomegranate come from? Well, it comes from regions of the world where maybe sanitation and public health is not a priority, right? And so you have to ask the question, well, and so where are we sourcing our frozen berries, right? It's not, it's not from the, um, cute little farm down the road more than likely, right? At least, I mean, that's my supposition. I don't have any, any facts on that, but, um, so, so, and again, is that another risk factor is that the people that are producing frozen berries tend to be more marginal producers, or they tend to be producers, um, in countries where again, um, public health, et cetera, is not a, not a priority. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and then, and then too, before we segue to frozen food safety in general, I just want to share one brief anecdote. Um, and I want to suitably anonymize this. Let's say that I have a former, former student who works in the food industry and his job is related to inspecting plants and within a corporate culture where some of the plants kind of get get it around around hepatitis A and some don't and you know what should the policy of the company be and and should they vaccinate and you know what and so this is this is not just a problem with frozen berries this is potentially a problem with all Shelf stable foods because right. guess what viruses survive. They don't need to grow. They survive really well. Uh, you have a worker that's infectious who is, you know, spreading the virus in the plant and on the product. Uh, I think viral outbreaks tend to be hard to detect uh, just because we can't typically easily culture them and, temp- um, and tempor- temporally as well, right? Like because of that shelf stable nature. Right. Right. Yeah. You could have a, you could have a signal, uh, a, a public health signal that is, that is so spread out and so diverse, um, that you just don't, you just don't see it. So yeah, it's anyway, uh, interesting, interesting problems, um, uh, around, uh, viruses in, in, uh, shelf stable foods. Yeah. And, and we've seen, you know, viruses in those shelf-stable foods, uh, really big uh, outbreak in Japan a couple of years ago with bread, 
like a thousand kids that were that were sick and and then you know i don't there's there's always things that are lost in translation but i did read a report that said that the that norovirus was found in um uh, in the restroom of the bakery where the bread was made and it matched the genetic sequence of of the outbreak strain so i don't know if they did whole genome sequencing or what but um but you know it's that's a huge, you know, it's a huge issue, not issue, but it's a huge thing for us to, to think about on, in all those shelf staple foods. That's a good, good, um, good point. Um, hey, so there was something that you mentioned um, that made me think of something else. Okay. <laughs> that's what we do, right? As we talk about stuff and then we think about other things. Of course. That's the, that's the whole uh, modus operandi of the podcast. It is. It is. Um, so... Um, you you mentioned that you you know just to preserve anonymity that you weren't going to mention someone's name and I think this is probably the point in the podcast where we have to mention um, something <laughs> that we we received a message um, on uh, through the through the website and so someone someone sent us something and they checked off um, you know we have privacy. Um, uh, you know, uh, preferences on messages and the, the individual checked off uh, privacy. Don't reveal my name or message content on the air. So we respect the submitter's privacy requests. So we're not going to mention the content or the sender by name. Uh, but what we can say is that we received a comment and it had something to do with something and someone sent it. Right, and and let's let we can tease it even further. We can we say can. that there, it's a it's a product that could benefit people um, who are trying to control pathogens. So, right. and but we we're not allowed. They, they send us a message, but we not, but they don't want us to tell anybody. Right. So here, so here this know. this is us not telling you. Yeah, we know we know what it is, and and I I suspect that they probably don't listen to the podcast, awesome. and they probably just saw this as a way to promote their message, but they they didn't really look at the radio buttons carefully. No, so, um, I we just aren't able to tell you about it. Yeah, and not that we would anyway, because because <laughs> right, it was kind of a spammy message. It was very spammy, but but um, um, but if it yeah, so so we have I guess. I guess it boils down to we have some information that that people may or may not want to know about, and uh, but to respect the privacy of the individual, we can't tell you. Yeah, and we and we we're not allowed to tell you, and we probably wouldn't anyway. Right, and we probably wouldn't anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's so let's talk. I, I would like to talk about frozen food safety in general, and yeah, some and and this is again this sort of ties into some of the things that we've discussed. Uh, previously on the podcast, some of the things that we've discussed with respect to the interests of, um, uh, um, I think we can say American Frozen Food Institute, um, and that is, you know, controlling pathogens in frozen food. And, and frozen foods are blanched prior to freezing because it leads to better quality, and that blanching process does, to some degree control pathogens but but generally because the blanching process is designed to produce quality changes in the product or or to control quality losses in the product not for microbiology it's of unknown food safety effectiveness and then again some work is underway to try to address that but the, you know 
frozen food is interesting because typically, and let's 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 take frozen vegetables as a for instance. Let's take frozen peas. In fact, for a very specific instance. Um, Frozen peas are sold by the frozen food industry for the primary purpose of people reheating those frozen peas, typically in boiling water, to eat. And so this is a food product that will be cooked by the consumer prior to consumption, except in the instance where a restaurant takes frozen peas and places them on the salad bar for people to add to their salads. And in that particular instance, the the restaurant is not going to take the frozen peas, heat them to boiling, cool them back down to salad bar temperatures and put them out on the salad bar. What they're going to do is they're going to take frozen peas and they're going to put them out on the salad bar and let them slack out um, to, to frozen, to, to, to cold temperatures so people can scoop them out and put them on their salads. And so I guess the question that I have for you, Ben, and there is a question behind all of this, um, what is the two two part question okay what is the responsibility of the frozen food industry to the safety of that restaurant consumer and what is the responsibility of the restaurant and and i think that the the let me give you a, a hypothetical answer the frozen food industry might respond that it's the restaurant's responsibility and the restaurant re- might respond it's the frozen food industry's responsibility so how would you how would you navigate that from a risk management perspective well i mean i think the the first part the the two responsibilities that i see and i'll start with the the restaurant side is first knowing that that product is not ready to eat. And and I, I would hazard a guess that um, that there are many individuals within the, the food industry, within the restaurant industry or, or institutional food service industry that would assume that a frozen pea that has been heat treated for blanching, for, for enzymes, is a ready-to-eat item that – and – and it's clearly from the frozen food industry standpoint, it is not. You know, as, as you just explained, there, there's there, there's some um, some issues around around that that process. So, uh, you know, the first responsibility is is really just understanding that it's that it's not, and then making a risk management decision based on it. Um, on the frozen food industry standpoint, um, and you know, this this came up with some of our discussions at um, at, at the AFI meeting is is really understanding what consumers and and buyers are doing with that product. So um, the industry, so so I guess it comes down to someone has to make a decision because we have one portion of the industry that says uh, we don't know that it's not ready to eat, and the other portion of the industry that says, hey. We're making something that, by the way, it's not ready to eat, but we're not really doing a, um, a, a very overt job at telling you that. Like, you should just know that it's not ready to eat because it doesn't, because it says on the package, you have to reheat this, this product. So I guess the responsibility to me is, it, it lies with both of them on better, better communication of what that product is and how it should be handled, and then understanding what, you know, what, what to do with it. I don't know. I mean, I say that. I don't know if either of those things are going to happen. And I'll give you the example, another frozen food product, 
um, an, an example of how this is played out with consumers, which uh, these uh, frozen chicken items that mm-hmm. we've had multiple mm-hmm. salmonella outbreaks with, um, USDA basically uh, well, said after, you know, I guess it was like nah, uh, 2006, 2007, said you're going to label all of your products as not ready to eat and they must be, re, you know, re, must be cooked. It is a raw product, uh, some model for labeling. And, and as, a, uh, as a purchaser of those types of products for my kids, um, the raw ones, it, it, is, it is difficult for you to find a raw frozen chicken item now. Right, because the because the industry has decided that rather than label it yep. uh, as raw and needs to be reheated, they're just going to cook the chicken. Right, and they're making and, it a ready to eat food right. that requires a reheat step, not a raw piece. Right. of chicken, absolutely. So, so which is so which I, is which is a reasonable response? Absolutely, and it and it takes the it takes all this uncertainty out of the uh, out of the mix. Um, you know there. There are two. There are two things on frozen foods that that I find interesting around the communication and um, part of things. Um, you know, you may it, from the frozen food industry standpoint, they may think, well, we've put those, these handling uh, instructions on our packaging, so people are going to follow that. And if they don't follow it, well, hey, the instructions are there. Um, I, you know, I've shared with you. Um, I've talked with with others about this. When when our when my kids were teething, our pediatrician suggested they munch on frozen um, vegetables like frozen peas and corn uh, and carrots as a way, you know, it's, it's a way for them to, um, you know, to deal with some of the pain that, that they had because it's now this cool, it's like they're chewing on ice and also it's a way for them, for them to eat. That pediatrician so, so we've, we've thrown someone else in the mix here, right? Like the message from the company to me on the package is you got to reheat these things. I may or may not see that message, but I didn't even think about that product as a, as a teething mechanism or a teething tool until my pediatrician said, don't thaw these things, don't cook them, just give it to your kid frozen. So we now have someone else who's like, who, who I, and, and I, you know, I would say I'm, people are going to their pediatricians for, for health advice for their kids. That's kind of their, their job. Um, is now telling me how to use a product incorrectly. And the industry probably doesn't even know that, right? Like unless they're following, you know, pediatrician blogs or, or, or looking at recommendations uh, that, are, that are out there. And I don't know how widespread that, that is. I've, you know, I've talked to other parents who also got similar advice, but you have this like confusing message. You know, here's a, here's a risk reduction step. This is, you know, we, we have some sort of dialogue between the two of us. And now I'm going to throw a third party in here who's going to give you, who you really trust. And they're going to give you some, some different piece of information um, that, that probably if I was in the frozen food industry, that would piss me off a bit. Um, so, so I, you know, coming back to your question on who's responsible for it, I, I think my, my guess in this is that at some point the frozen food industry are they're just going to sell ready to eat frozen products that will cost more because they they'll go through a validated step and the quality might be a little different so they have to start with something different for restaurants and potentially for um for consumers but I but restaurants first because that practice is so widespread 
Yeah, yeah, and I and I and I suppose they do have a way to differentiate because typically the consumer packaging and products are different than the food service bulk pack ones, and so it would be possible for them to and and there may be different streams already, you know, different right. incoming quality stream or different different incoming product streams for those anyway. Um, and again, here's where our lack of knowledge about the industry, you know, shows. But but yeah, I think uh, I think you're right that 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 does make sense in terms of a strategy. And also like an approach, right? Like so you start with, well, okay, so we're going to deal with the, the industrial customers first, right? Is that what you said or you said consumers first? I, no, I said industrial. You're right. Yeah. yeah. The, the uh, ones that we know are slacking. Like, like right. we don't know a whole lot about how consumers are handling them. My guess would be most people are doing as you described it, that they're boiling it or microwaving it. Actually, microwaving um, – Especially for things like corn and peas, uh, is mm-hmm. it, you know is, is probably just as common. Right. Well, I don't know. I that's a, that's a that's guess. a guess. Un- totally yeah. unfounded with her data. Well, it's, uh, it's anecdotal evidence from your house and my house, so that's yeah. two data points. But yeah. <laughs> but well, and the other thing that you have too is that you have uh, now the uh, retail and or retail and food service food safety people talking to the food processing frozen food food safety people, and they can have a dialogue that is not possible with the consumers, right? So right. so and there may be a negotiation there about okay, this is what we need in terms of product specs and et cetera, et cetera. And this so. is what we're going to, this is how we handle it. This right. Typically we do because exactly. it's, yeah, it's a smaller group. It, it's, this is interesting. And I mean, we haven't really focused here too much on it, but it, this is a listeria issue, right? Like, so, so, if, so if I was the frozen food industry, I'm much more concerned about someone slacking it in my institutional accounts than I am at Applebee's. Because the institutional accounts are going to be the higher risk groups for the most mm. part. You know, mm-hmm. Elder care facilities, hospitals, schools. That's that. So if I, so my strategy would be let's get those ones first because we're more likely to see illnesses in that population. Agreed. Agreed. So um, – what I'd like to talk about this, and this, there's no good way to to segue this because I think we've we've built we've 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 finished on frozen foods, but I I would like to, like to talk about um, bathrooms and ladies' shoes. Oh, me too. <laughs> do I ever want to talk about bathrooms and ladies' shoes? I I didn't think that yesterday afternoon that I would have ever uttered that 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 sentence. sentence. Yeah. So oh, so let me. Let me let me let me let me introduce things, and then I'll turn it over to you. So, um, so this is an article that um, came my way uh, from from you, um, and, and from a tweet from you. And the the headline of the article is: Research looks at listeria screening in public lavatories. And this is from uh, in, Infection Control Today, which is a website, and. And basically, uh, the 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 sort of the lead, the article lead, I guess, or maybe that's the caption for the photo is, oh, it's horrible, horrible sentence. On their shoes, people carry a great number of different bacteria through toilet facilities. Yeah, it's it's the photo caption. Um, so the horrible sentence is, uh, on their shoes, people carry a great number of different bacteria through toilet facilities. And then, the photo above that, it looks. Either it's a it's it, it's it's e- either there's something wrong 
with the aspect ratio of the image or it is a – what's the appropriate term? It's a, a full-bodied woman from about mid-calf down um, walking into what is a very short squat toilet facility. So I've got to say that the image, uh, oh. image aspect ratio is off. But it is, it is a rather – and she's wearing – not, not to make this sexist, she's wearing nylons with a seam up the back of her stockings. It's a, let's just say it's a salacious photo. Is that the right word? Um, and introducing an article on listeria, and then again, incredible. And the article goes on to say listeria monocytogenes is the so-called environmental bacterium. I don't know who it's so-called by, that by. I don't, I don't so call it that. But anyway. Um, uh, and, and, and studies carried out to the, the University of Veterinary Medicine Vienna have shown that Listeria monocytogenes is – well, okay, sorry. That's not the article. Um, uh, anyway, it's – I don't know. I don't know what to make of this, Ben, because uh, they found that uh, Listeria in 2% of all lavatory samples um, – Huge. It's amazing. And, and uh, it's especially high at park facilities and mobile container lavatories, which show a prevalence of more than 10%. Uh, prevalence was lower in restrooms of shopping centers and at public transport locations. I don't, I don't have off the top of my head prevalence data on retail deli slicers or retail facilities, uh, retail delis, but I've got to bet it's at least that high, and I'm way more worried about those than my bathrooms. But but hey, this had a picture of a sexy lady in shoes, so I looked at it. <laughs> so you're right, right, uh, right, right. My favorite my favorite quote is from a micro microbiological point of view: urban lavatory facilities are especially exciting places. <laughs> yeah, for so many reasons. Right, right. So so we, you and I had this Twitter exchange around this yesterday. Um, my, mine mainly because, you know, we, through our news, uh, gathering, uh, activities, I was just going through Google alerts and I was like, Oh, this is an interesting, uh, headline. Let me see why someone might think that Listeria and public laboratories are interesting. And then I click on the link and I was like, Oh, it's because of the shoes. Um, and so, but, but, but here, you know, so, so my, my discussion was if I, you know, <sighs> Listeria would not be the pathogen I would worry about in, in public laboratories from a from an infectious disease standpoint. And this is assuming a lot of things, like assuming that I am somehow going to get the environmental pathogen from my shoes to my hands. I would be much, much more concerned about norovirus, about something that might be deposited there from a uh, a vomit event or a diarrheal event, which Listeria is likely not uh, coming through that. You know, it's, it's you know, all, all guesses here. It's likely coming from uh, from soil. And that would be why, when I looked at the paper, potentially why you see parks being um, a, a much higher source. It's because there's a lot of soil in a park compared to a shopping mall. So, so what the paper kind of says is, hey, there's a bunch of soil in your in, in your laboratory, uh, on your shoes in laboratories, in public places, which really doesn't matter unless I'm having a picnic on that floor in in a public spot, which is probably not a good idea anyway. And as uh, you know, the the late Bill Keen would say, taking food into a restroom is not a good idea. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and there's a couple of. It's not a long article, but it's full of. 
uh, uh, practical advice like um, do not enter living and eating areas with street shoes. Also, delivery persons and workmen often wear safety shoes with a deep tread. It is especially important that these persons regularly clean and disinfect their shoes. Wow, what fantastic advice that no one is going to follow, right? Don't because wear be- shoes in your house. Yeah, well, and yeah, which which there's lots of reasons why one might not wear shoes in their house. Listeria is not one. It's not it, right? It's not, no. And 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 honestly, telling delivery people and workmen to clean and disinfect their shoes is just moronic advice, Ben. It's why would they do that? It makes no sense. And on the list of pathogens, as you said, on the list of pathogens in bathrooms that I'm more worried about than listeria, well, that would include salmonella. It would include pathogenic E. coli. It would include norovirus. It would include hepatitis A. It would include Campylobacter. Um, the only one that I would say is a lower that would be lower risk or equal risk to listeria would be staphylococcus and bacillus again these are all high dose pathogens right the median infectious dose for for listeria is phenomenally high the the uh the the, the dose uh, of staph and bacillus needed to create enough toxin to cause a, a human response is is quite high all any of these you know more lower infectious do- lower median infectious dose pathogens are a much higher risk and again this led me to my humorous comment that you shouldn't store your deli meats on the bathroom floor because they might become cross contaminated and then listeria will grow perhaps to a level where it might cause illness should you choose to eat the um you know the the deli meat that's been incubated on the bathroom floor i mean it's just it's awesome it's just idiotic I mean, you know, and this is this is why people that are not food microbiologists shouldn't do research with food microbiology with with foodborne microorganisms because they just get stuff wrong, like basic stuff wrong. <laughs> oh. I so I want to highlight one thing that I have a question for you. Sure. So from the abstract of this paper, let me read you: shoes sampled at Christmas markets showed the highest listeria. Uh, species and monocytogenes prevalence of 80%, four out of five, and 40%, two out of five, respectively. <laughs> so really, a, a much larger connection that they could have made is just don't go to Christmas markets, Don, because that's really, in our anecdotal four out of five, you're going to get the most listeria. And also, I want to point out, they looked at winter boots, hiking boots, sports shoes, and brogues and brogues had the lowest uh, lowest amount. So where where your brogues if you're not if you are trying to not <laughs> transfer listeria from through lavatories at Christmas markets. Yeah, if you're if you're if you're planning <laughs> on using your shoes to stop your deli meats <laughs> after you go to a Christmas market, the best bet is to wear brogues. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> okay. So that I wanted to highlight that. The oh. second part is you I'm I'm gonna challenge you on something that you've said in the past is um there is a place for all manuscripts. Is this, is this one does it fall into like should this be published anywhere? <laughs> oh, you're pressing me, Ben. It's honestly, honestly, it it is it is actually useful data okay. on on listeria prevalence in public places, right? And so, if I was, let's say, uh, a 
someone looking to do a risk assessment on control of listeria in, let's say, a processing plant, and I was looking at the intervention of a boot wash station or, or shoe tights. Right. Or, 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 right. Or, 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 or shoe covers or something. All right. Fair Th- enough. This would, this would give me the information that I needed to say, okay, that intervention is going to be controlling this level of risk. So, so the, the data in the article are useful. Not much else around it is useful. And, and apologies to any of these Viennese researchers. If any of them want to come on the po- if any of them listen and want to come on the podcast, and and we we will publicly apologize for all the nasty stuff we said, and we'll let them come on the podcast and defend their research. Is that fair? Yeah. Because I feel a little bit bad piling onto people, you know. But but it it is kind of yeah not not well done or well thought out. And, and, and again, it's fine. It's fine to do the research, but, but just stay away from risk management advice. If, if you don't know what you're talking about. Good. I, I, I accept your answer on that. I think you've, you have convinced me that, that there is uh, there is place in the literature for this data. Oh, and, and the final sentence of the abstract, these data suggest that soil environment is still one of the most important reservoirs for the foodborne pathogen Listeria monocytogenes. So that's good. That hasn't changed. They've confirmed, no. they've confirmed that, it's, that it, uh, you can still find Listeria in the soil because they found that on people's shoes. But, but <laughs> the new pieces that Christmas markets are a much higher... Uh, source than we had previously thought. They and, missed that part as, in the last sentence. And and brogues, low risk. Brogues are again. Low risk. I'm, I'm going to run out and buy a pair of brogues today as soon as I figure out what they are. In fact, when you go to anytime you go to a food processing plant, Don, I think you need to wear your new brogues and point out to them the reason why I'm wearing these is because they're less likely to transfer the listeria monocytogenes from the shopping mall that I was just in or the Christmas market to your facility. You know, you know why, I'm doing Ben? It for you. Because brogues are what I would call dress shoes, and you know what they have is flat bottoms <laughs> without treads. It's amazing. Um, the brogue derived from Gaelic <laughs> brog uh, is is a Scot- it's Scottish for shoe. It's a solid, low-heeled shoe or boot traditionally characterized by multiple pierced, sturdy leather uppers with decorative perforations or broguing. I, won't, I don't have any of these. You don't own a pair of brogues? No, not with, uh, not with, not with uh, stylish uh, pin placements. I have a – I don't even have a, a, a pair of men's quarter brogues. Huh. I have I – have, uh, I might have – it says – clearly we're re- reading from Wikipedia uh, concurrently right now. Uh, it says see also Oxford shoe, Derby shoe. I may have a pair of Ox – I have a pair of Oxfords. Okay. Which are um, – I guess a type of a – sub. yeah, it is uh, – uh, they are normally black. They may be planar pattern. It's not – I don't have a pattern brogue shoe. So what well, I guess maybe the, maybe in the show maybe in the in the article they were talking about an area enclosure or round tower or outer wall of a feudal castle. Do people wear those on their feet? I think they might. Are they talking about maybe maybe Bruges? Is it if you're in the the Belgian city of Bruges, it's better for Listeria? I don't know. I, I think you're oh. right. Oh man, it's awesome. Oh, don't we gotta get you some stuff. brogues, man. I'm I'm broked out. I'm good. I, it's the perforations, um, an untanned hide, which I'm avoiding. Perforations that can be a, a harborage point for listeria. Right. It's, it's surprising that the brogues are are better than the oxfords. Well, that's because you're not walking on the tops of the shoes. I guess so. What about the derby? Oh, I 
My dad wears derbies. Huh. That's uh... <laughs> in American his English. No, no, I don't. Yeah, sometimes in American English, the derby shoe may be referred to as the blucher. Blucher? I don't know. What do they say on Doctor Who? I don't think they say it on Doctor Who. It was named after a Prussian general. We are in a, a massive deep dive of shoes on Wikipedia. I think we need to end this. I think we do. <laughs> yeah, we, or wingtip in the United States. Yes, the wingtip, as Americans would call it. Oh, well, there wing you go. Wingtip. Where, where are your Bruges wingtip? No, Brogue. I don't know what it is. Don, I think that's an episode. <laughs> I, think I think it is. We, I think it's uh, – this has been Shoe, shoe Safety Talk. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for for lasting. Uh, we we went from uh, police officer. What do you, what kind of shoes do police officers wear? Do they wear brogues? I think oh. or work shoes. I bet they're I bet they're lousy with listeria. Yeah. Here, here's a good piece of advice: if you're getting chased by the cops, don't let them walk on your deli meats. Never, in, especially in a jail uh, restroom at Christmas at time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a show. Oh, thanks, Don. Thanks, Ben. This is fun. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, so speaking of Christmas time, um, I have started listening because I don't get enough John Roderick in my podcast feed. Um, right. Roderick's Rendezvous is uh, is now a podcast, um, and the one that I started listening to is a Christmas-themed one. Awesome. I need to get to Roderick on the line. You have not – you don't listen? I, I, no, I only listen to like the first two or three episodes. And then I got sidetracked in sports. Mm. And I've shame I'm on off, you. Yeah, well, see, I'm off of back to work right now because I'm now I'm I'm I kind of like um, the Dan Benjamin Hour. Yes. So mainly because you were on. Well, thanks. You're welcome. Seventy eight, seventy nine, whatever it takes. <laughs> did you did you see Birdman yet? No. Speaking we of Michael Keaton, is is that is there a reference to that in Birdman? No, there isn't. But but just Michael Keaton. It's yeah. It's because that's a Mr. Mom reference, and Michael Keaton is obviously in Birdman. So right, right, yeah. No, we haven't seen Birdman. Haven't seen Boyhood. Haven't really seen any good movies for a while. Yeah. So we we rented uh, Birdman a little while back, and then and last night we rented Saint Vincent. Oh yeah, I want to see that. Is yeah, that it's good. It's good. It's Bill Murray, right? Bill Bill Murray. Yep. 
he's, and yeah, fantastic. Although it's it's set in New York City, and for some reason he has a Boston accent, um, which doesn't make any sense. But um. <laughs> Bill Bill Murray doesn't seem like a New York City kind of guy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like he's not. That's that doesn't seem. That's not not how what I associate with him. It, yeah, but the, his, the character is is great, and it's it's a, it's a good it's a good movie. Bird, Birdman is good too, but really weird. Yeah, I, I like that. That's that's kind of my thing. We're all we're all into uh, House of Cards right now, so we're halfway through season three, and halfway through season three of Breaking Bad, and that's pretty much taking all of our time. Hmm. Which which both are phenomenal, phenomenal, hmm? phenomenal. Like, have you did did you guys get into House of Cards? No. Um, cause it's, it's political, right? It is. So Kristen, yeah, Kristen wouldn't like it. Um, and then breaking bad, uh, we have good and evil, good and evil problems. Right. But we have started watching the show with, there's some connection to breaking bad. It's better call Saul. No, it's, it's a new show with, it's a cop cop show with the guy who's menace from the, commercials um i'm not describing this well i don't know what that means um yeah well there's a there's there's <laughs> i think there's car, there's car insurance commercials with this character called menace who's hello? oh hello hello i'm here can you hear me yeah no i said flow oh flow. No. flow from the car from um oh, well hey i think i gotta go battle creek battle set in battle creek michigan battle creek that's what it is. All right. I'm sorry. That's I, right. That was just going to bug me until uh, until I, I I figured it out. So, all right. <laughs> so we're scheduled. I've recovered the lost information from my brain. Perfect. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. <laughs> we are we are scheduled. Yes. You'll Josh Duhamel is in that. Oh, and that guy from uh, the I know the guy. You know the guy I'm talking about now, right? Yeah, from the from the commercials. Yeah. He was on. Uh, did you watch Thirty Rock? No. At all? He's on 30 Rock. He's okay. a really good character on 30 Rock. Calls everybody dummy, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing, dummy? <laughs> yeah, similar kind of character on this Battle Creek show. Good. Well, that's, so. that's his guy. That's, yeah. that's what he does. Um, cool. Okay, so we're set. We know who's doing what. Um, okay. All right. Excellent. Cool. Thanks uh, a lot, Ben. No problem. I'll talk to you later, right. and uh, see you later, dummy. <laughs> Bye, dummy. <laughs> Bye.